Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This episode, Kaya Heise and Lisa Gulia talk with Enid Logan about her book, At This Defining Moment, Barack Obama's Presidential Candidacy and the New Politics of Race. Logan reflects back on race and gender in the 2008 campaign, and also looks at how things have and have not changed for the current 2012 campaign. So, Professor Logan, thank you for joining us on the podcast. All right. Uh, So first we're going to talk about your book that you recently published in 2011. It's called, At This Defining Moment, Barack Obama's Presidential Candidacy and the New Politics of Race. So this is about Obama's first run for president. And now that he's running again, we wanted to bring you on the podcast and get your take on the 2012 campaign primaries and Obama's bid for re-election. So first, for those listeners who may not be familiar with your book, can you give a brief overview of your main arguments in the book, maybe mm-hmm. why you decided to write it? Mm-hmm. Well, what I try to do in the book is use the 2008 presidential race as a way to talk about emergent trends in race relations. So it kind of becomes a grounded case study through which I can discuss some of the major issues in the race relations literature are also just like the major questions about race in the U.S. today. So about the, the emerging construct of blackness, how it's changing as we have uh, immigrants come in from the Caribbean, from Africa, as we have this uh, new construct of multiraciality, as we have the class divide among African Americans growing in importance, about the racialization of Asian Americans and Latinos, um, how they were figured in the election, about this idea of post-racialism, etc. Because I was fascinated to see how many of these questions about race, all this questioning about race, took place as the press discussed Obama's candidacy. And then can you just explain a little bit, you use the new politics of race. Can you just give us like a kind of a brief definition of, of what you mean by that? Get us all grounded. Right, sure. So the new politics of race is a term that, that was used throughout the 2008 campaign. So it was used quite a bit in 2007 to 2009. And what it referred to was this argument that Obama represented a new politics of race, meaning a new way of doing race, a new way of being black in the mainstream, a new kind of black politics. So it's very similar to the idea of post-racialism, the politics of post-racialism. So Obama was known as a as a member of a cohort of uh, new black politicians, or the next generation of black politicians, which would include uh, Cory Booker in New Jersey, Adrian Fenty, who was former mayor of D.C., um, and a number of... Michael Nutter in uh, Philadelphia and uh, Patrick Deval Patrick in uh, Massachusetts. So the idea was that they were uh, non-protest oriented. They were non-angry. They were upbeat. Um, they were not throwing race in the, the in white people's faces. You know, and this was a better way of being a black politician. So they were the new politics of race. They were in contrast with more problematic or quote unquote stale uh, representations of black politics. Um, found in people such as Jeremiah Wright, uh, Jesse Jackson, and Al Sharpton at that time. As far as methods for your book, you read a lot of articles and blogs. Mm-hmm. Can you 
tell us about that quickly? And mm-hmm. What's the strategy for using methods like that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of tricky because when you're using, I ended up using a lot of internet sources, right? And so those are not cataloged in the same way that maybe newspaper articles are. And furthermore, they might be posted and then they disappear. <laughs> like a few months later, you may never find that link again. So what I ended up doing was following different stories, these kind of major storylines, because I was interested in not kind of excavating hidden histories or secret subtext, but looking at the dominant narratives or dominant ways that race and blackness and politics are being talked about. So I'd follow these storylines through the mainstream press and also um, the, the major blogs, such as Slade and Politico, townhall.com, um, Drudge Report. So through the major conservative, liberal, progressive blogs, also the mainstream media outlets, focusing mainly on stuff that was written as opposed to um, on the radio or television, um, so I could have the actual text to look at. And also I would venture out into maybe lesser-known blogs or lesser-known newspapers to the extent that the really major stories came out of there. For example, Geraldine Ferraro made these comments that Barack Obama was lucky to be black kind of as part of this conversation about what is more challenging to overcome race versus gender in the society. And so she said, well, if Obama had not been black, he wouldn't have gotten as far as he had um, to kind of defend um, Hillary Clinton. This came out in a Miami paper known as the Daily Breeze. It's a fairly small paper. But I had I referred to this, for example, because this is kind of the origins of that story, which then kind of blew up and was discussed you know, throughout the press. So I ended up using uh, about 1,500 uh, media sources, mainly editorials, articles, blog postings, collected between 2006 and 2009, so into the first year of his, um, I was going to say pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. His presidency. (laughs) The first year of his pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. You should use that. I think it'll be funny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, One more question on that line. Can you back up and tell us why you decided to write the book? I was just so interested in all the discussions about race and blackness and Obama that were taking place. So I ended up doing like 10 different presentations on this issue at all kinds of outlets or venues. And and I did not think that Obama... I, I was sure Clinton was going to win. I had no right. no inkling that Obama had a chance. And I, at that point, I was like, I thought he was like a, a young, inexperienced, interesting, <laughs> you know, little puppy. And, uh, you know, maybe the next time around, he, he would, you know, make a, a really viable candidate. But there was a speech that he gave, but he just gave me chills. And it was just like, boom. So that was kind of my personal moment. But also just kind of seeing how the Obama phenomenon took off. I mean, I think originally it was going to be an article and then uh, it was focused on the Democratic primary issue and the kind of race versus gender controversy between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, which I just found so fascinating because I've always been interested in this question of intersectionality, which is often not grounded enough in sociology, like it's discussed as a theoretical construct, but it's usually not, it's really hard to talk about in a grounded manner. So I was mainly interested in that, and then all these other things kept coming up, and race was so central in all the public discussions that were taking place, both in the media and also in in people's everyday conversations of people that I knew. Okay, so I, I don't think I made clear enough, but the new politics of race for me are a set of prescriptions for black people. 
So they're a way that African-American politicians and middle-class blacks as a whole are supposed to kind of behave or perform blackness or be black in the public sphere for acceptance or integration into the mainstream. So when I say it's a part of the politics of post-racialism, which is related to colorblindness, those arguments kind of go in, are are more related to like colorblindness and post-racialism. But the new politics of race is a set of prescriptions for, say, middle-class blacks um, in politics and also outside of politics um, as for what they should do to bring about a society free of racial strife. So um, Obama was taken as an exemplar of the new race politics and someone who was doing race right. And there was all these moments in which it it was said, look, he's like um, running against a past in black politics. He's, you know, proven that this racial victimology discourse is dead. You know, he's he's proven that you don't have to be... Uh, I think George Will and uh, William Bennett said the day after the Iowa primary that he proved to black people that you didn't have to be angry, that you could speak intelligently about the issues or something like that. So the new politics of race is a kind of politics or set of prescriptions or racial etiquette directed at blacks particularly and also other people of color, but it's mainly directed at blacks because blacks are seen as the most problematic group of people of color in the U.S. So it's been argued that in the present moment we have this politics of colorblindness. And the thing that I've seen is that colorblind racial discourse, it's very flexible, but there's a very large range. So that you might have uh, more liberal-leaning versions of colorblindness, and then you have more right-wing versions of colorblindness. To some degree, when you get too far on the right-wing spectrum, you fall out of colorblindness into <laughs> just being you know, more overtly racist. And kind of on the other side, if you go really far on the liberal spectrum, you do kind of get more into progressive politics. But there's a very large um, in-between area that I think has been insufficiently uh, paid attention to by scholars. The, the, the fact that there are some differences between liberal and more conservative variants of colorblind um, racial politics, but that also there are important points of similarity. But uh, since Barack Obama's election, you've seen more of kind of an, a flourishing of overtly racialized uh, comments. And even more of this whole this can't be racist, or it's it's not racist. Are you calling this racist is reverse racism? Um, or I couldn't be a racist because I have a black friend. Or I can't be a racist because I have a, a charity. Or I can't be a racist because I don't have a racist bone in my body. So you've seen even more racialized comments and even more intolerance for the idea that these comments should be censored or that they're problematic in some way. For example, we had the... Um, email circulated by a federal judge about uh, a a few, uh, maybe a month and a half ago, in which he made some allusion to Obama's mother having engaged in bestiality. And Barack said, how do you know who my dad is or something? And she said, Barack, given how that party was, you're lucky that you don't bark or something. So some complicated, really twisted, strange thing. Um, And this was circulated by a federal judge. And... uh, 
you know, there was some outrage, but, you know, his first response was, it was humor, and I can't be a racist, I'm not a racist, because I've done X, Y, Z, you know? So you've seen a lot of these kind of comments. Uh, I think there's been kind of an emboldening of people like Newt Gingrich saying that Obama was the greatest food stamp president in American history, or characterizing... Um, I think Spanish is the language of the ghetto, and then his arguments that it would be a wonderful thing if poor inner-city children would learn the value of work by cleaning up their schools. So he said something like, we should fire all the janitors and have these kids clean up their schools to learn the value of work. Unbelievable, because he's clearly referring to lower-income children of color, probably black children, implying that they have no work, that their parents don't work, etc. So I think you've seen kind of more of these comments come forward lately. They're kind of stretching the boundaries of, of, of colorblindness, and, you know, I have to think about, are they really tipping over because colorblindness is supposed to be a language of kind of polite racism supposed to be anti-racist racism in a way and so I think we need to maybe think about are we even within that sphere anymore or has it become that there's just kind of more of a legitimacy or an acceptance for more overt expressions of anti-black racism since he's come into office for example, a lot of the opposition to Obama seems to have been so overtly racialized, you know? Or, no, it's more like the U.S. can't be racist because there's a black president. Or, look how far the U.S. has gone against whites, that we now have this black president mm-hmm. who has this anti-white agenda, this socialist agenda, you know, who's trying to oppress white people. So we have to stand up for ourselves as, as whites, and kind of like that. like, And that's not racism. That's just us standing up like, for ourselves against this black president. Yeah, you have a chapter on that in the book about defending the white nation. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Palin and John McCain talking about you know, middle America as the real America. As the 2012 primaries have gone through, have we seen the Republican candidates do that as well? Do you think that's going to be something that's going to play out in the next... Uh, in the next few months between Obama and Romney? Okay, interestingly, no, not so much because it was a populist discourse at that time. So I think I'm sure that race stuff will come in here, but it will be framed probably differently as the general election progresses. However, what was your question? This idea of defending the white nation playing out in the 2008 primaries and how they... It was a very kind of populist discourse articulated around the idea that Obama was not only problematic and black, but he was elite. He was like this elite liberal black person, right? Mm -hmm. So that the real America was like middle America. It was white. It was blue collar. It was uh, pickup trucks and handguns and the red, white, and blue and all this stuff, right? So it was a kind of anti-intellectual um populist, red state, that kind of thing. Well, Mitt Romney has been 
framed, and he he can't help it because he's a like a, one of the richest people in the world. But the, one of the the central framings that Mitt Romney has gotten both from the right, especially Rick Santorum, and also from the Obama campaign, is being out of touch because he's so rich, and so he's not going to be able to to marshal that same kind of racially coded populist discourse in in this particular election. However, that. Real America thing is not going away because, as I talk about in the book, that has kind of long-standing roots in uh, Republican and conservative discourse since about probably sometime in the 1970s is kind of when it first reared its its head. Uh, so that kind of idea, like um, Glenn Beck published a book called The Real America. There's been all this talk about real Americans, red state Americans versus kind of these elite uh, latte sip, uh, sipping uh, people on the East Coast um, or on the West Coast, and you know the secular progressives that were on Christmas, the homosexuals, the socialists, people who read the New York Times, etc. So that's a that's a dominant strain of conservative thought, which is tied into racialized concerns. But I don't think it's going to be able to play out the same way in the general election here because it's so class coded mm-hmm. and and. Romney is just not going to be able to make that kind of argument with all the kind of class-related comments he makes, you know? Like, I think he made some comment like, I love NASCAR. Several of my friends own NASCAR teams or some hilarious comments. I love to fire people or... Oh, when he he said at one of the debates to Rick Perry, he said, let's make a bet. $10,000? Want to bet $10,000 on that? Oh, gosh. When you talk about how race and gender intersect in the 2008 election and how some feminists argued that you know, it was sexism for why Hillary didn't win, but you kind of argue that it was less about sexism and more about Obama doing race, right? Um, you guys read the book really closely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good book. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so he's, he's doing race right as this post-racial candidate, like we've talked about. So can you talk a little bit about gender in the primary between Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin. So I, I, I really like this question because this issue was really interesting to me. I think my conclusion was that it wasn't as much sexism that took her down. There was arguments that one of the reasons, if I heard like hard, some of her hardcore supporters, that Obama was winning because he was sexist. Like, there's people saying he's unquestionably sexist, he's a misogynist, or at the least he's benefiting from the misogyny thrown at Hillary Clinton, and he's standing by with his ambition, and he's trampling her because he's a man. So my argument was that I think it had less to do with him benefiting from gender privilege than with the appeal of his race, that with with him doing race right. And I thought that he did race better than Hillary Clinton did gender. Because the question, one of the questions was, well, people are saying this is his, could be a historic presidency for having the first woman president or the first black president. So that's what it was at the beginning. Two historic candidacies, we could have the first woman and first black president. And it was, there was this clear pres- presumption that Obama's candidacy would be more historic and more important for the nation. And I was curious as to why that was, like why that became so central. And so I think it was, I think it was that about race versus gender, there's something about the centrality of race or about blackness to both 
U.S. cultural and social history, but also to liberal politics, that it is so much more central and, and relevant than than gender is. So I think that anti-racism, like this kind of circumscribed liberal anti-racism, is much more important or central to uh, liberalism in the U.S. than being anti-sexist or being um, kind of pro, pro-woman. And mm-hmm. so it seemed like uh, it was so appealing to champion Barack Obama, to be able to champion him as a black candidate. And it was just a much more exciting thing, and it just had so much more appeal than the idea of championing Hillary Clinton as a woman, feminist candidate or woman candidate. Now, the other thing is Hillary Clinton seemed very ambivalent about her gender and about whether or not she was a feminist. A lot of kind of the older um, second generation feminists like Gloria Steinem and uh, Robin Morgan and uh, Geraldine Ferraro, I'm not sure if it was Robin Morgan, and uh, some, some other women writing in the New York Times and on other uh, blogs and newspapers, you know, argued that it was women's historic duty to vote for Hillary Clinton. If they didn't, that was because they their own self-hatred. Whereas some younger feminists who supported Obama said, this is ridiculous just because she has a uterus, I'm not backing her. One woman said she's like a, a patriarchy in sheep's clothing, that she's being very um, masculinist that, that with the, her whole hawkish thing, with the pro-military intervention, and some of them argued, well, you know, Barack Obama has more feminist perspectives than Hillary Clinton does. And it's about, if you want to support the cause of feminism, don't be so tied to bodies and be more tied to ideas. So that was the argument that was put out there. But I think that partly, like there was a really interesting article in the uh, Washington Post by uh, Benjamin Wallace Wells that said that there was uh, something like a galloping desire in the U.S. to to have a goodbye to all that moment with race that that made uh, the appeal of his candidacy so much stronger than the appeal of a a Clinton candidacy. I think the article was called, "Is, Is America Too racist for Barack, too sexist for Hillary. And then several other people, Gary, uh, I think it's Kaimia in Slate.com, made this argument about the radical appeal of Obama's race, because voting for Obama, he was like the reconciliation of the, the ugly, bitter history of the past. I was looking at how is race playing out versus how is gender playing out, and how do they compare, and how are they kind of going head-to-head with each other. But then you have to take the issue of the ways that the female candidates or women in the election were gendered also quite seriously. So in in addition to Hillary Clinton, there was Sarah Palin. There was also Cindy McCain. And there was Michelle Obama, Mm -hmm. who were gendered in very powerful and very different ways. So Michelle Obama was very, very strongly racialized as she was gendered. So she was portrayed as this angry black woman stereotype, which was amazing because it just was like, it was so hard to combat at the beginning. (laughs) There was like this insistence that she had to be this angry black woman. And there were rumors that she had written a a thesis when she was in college called something like Kill Whitey or something or Why I Want to Kill Whitey and you know there was just all these they were always talking about her frown and how she was angry and how she was ungrateful she made this statement at one point that she was really proud of America for the first time or something that was taken to show how she was um one of these typical ungrateful black people. Um, So she was stereotyped or uh, gendered as the angry black woman. Whereas, 
you know, undoubtedly uh, Hillary Clinton faced an unbelievable amount of sexism, but a lot of it was kind of, it wasn't under the radar, it was just unreported. So while the, there was a very vigilant liberal media looking for any examples of anything that could be construed as racism against Barack Obama, this is my contention, but there wasn't nearly the concern or interest to the kind of comments and critiques that Hillary Clinton received. It's really because a lot of these comments were made by men, you know, liberal or progressive male commentators um, who were championing Obama and looking for anti-racism and then would make sexist comments about Hillary Clinton. So she got all kinds of comments about how her laugh was like a cackle, about her how her cleavage was repulsive, you know, about how Hillary Clinton nutcrackers were being sold. Men hear Obama speak, they hear the future. When they hear Hillary Clinton speak, they hear take out the garbage, something like this. You know, so she was, there was kind of an onslaught of uh, sexist comments, disparaging comments thrown at her, which were definitely acceptable. I would not say that there's the same level of... um, I mean, post-feminism, I think, has a kind of probably much uglier underside than than post-racialism in a way because it, it's so... Post-feminism is like, look, we are so over feminism. Uh, we're not having it. Whatever. You know, there's still bitches out there and we're going to call them bitches and, um, and idiots and airheads. Okay, so then you had Sarah Palin, who was gendered also in a really different way because... She was so ridiculed. I mean, she was a problematic person, right? But she was so ridiculed by women on the left uh, who, I mean, and even in a lot of interviews I did with undergraduates, I had a number of students who called themselves feminists and they would refer to him, as well as students who were Obama supporters that I interviewed, and they would refer to him as a, an idiot and a bimbo and an airhead. And so while... Her presentation may have not been the most presidential. The ways that she was caricatured or disparaged were in very kind of overtly sexist terms. And she was very um, strongly derided in those terms. Um, Oh, and then, uh, so I guess for Michelle Bachman, surprisingly, she wasn't really wasn't around that long. Like, she won the Iowa straw poll, which made me think she was going to be around for a while, but then she just went down right after that, but one of the ways that she was characterized was being kind of a crazy, airheaded person as well. The coverage of her response to some, she made some kind of response to maybe a speech Obama had made or something, and there was all this kind of mocking of the fact that she was looking at a teleprompter, like, off camera or something. So, you know, I think that this, the ways that uh, female candidates are portrayed in politics is something that needs to be looking into more deeply and also I think in the context also in in uh, in the context of also looking at this issue of race at the same time that will be important to do going forward mm-hmm. how do you see the comparison between Obama and Herman Cain and how they portray themselves as well as how they're portrayed what I saw at the at the time of his popularity which um, I think was about September to November it's about about two months, was that he came out of nowhere and he skyrocketed to the top of the polls, as did uh, a number of other candidates uh, subsequent to him and before him. Rick Perry, uh, Michelle 
Bachman, uh, Herman Cain, uh, Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich. So he skyrockets out the polls, despite the fact that he was not a politician. He, I don't think he ever held politi- political office. He was basically unknown. And, and so I was wondering, what what's going on here? You know, like, how is this possible? Why is he so popular? Why is he the darling of the Tea Party? And what I thought, what I argued that, was that looking at Kane and was an opportunity to think about the, kind of the emergent dimensions of racial politics on the right and also the political utility of blackness for conservatives. So while in the book I looked at the emergent dimensions of racial politics on the left and the utility of blackness for liberals, I said, well, Kane is kind of an example to look at the political utility of blackness for conservatives because there's some, I'm sorry, he's not incidentally black. As Obama was not incidentally black, there's something about his blackness that is powerful and appealing, um, especially because he makes such a big deal of it. So what is that? And one of my arguments was that there were similarities in the ways that they talked about race in that Obama spoke the kinds of truths about race that white liberals most wanted to hear. And Herman Cain spoke the kind of truths about race that conservatives, white conservatives, most wanted to hear. And then I said, you know what, actually these, these truths are not really that different. There, there are some similarities, they're phrased differently. You know, uh, when I did an interview with um, the local Fox News television station, I was asked, it was November 2011, so Cain was at the top of the polls right then. I was asked whether or not I thought Herman Cain could win a significant proportion of the black vote, because I think he said he had said he could win at least a third. But I thought this question was so odd because it was so clear to me that he wasn't even trying to win the black vote. I was just like, are, are you kidding? So, um, because so many of the comments he made about blacks were in insulting or belittling. Like he um, described blacks as having been brainwashed by the Democratic Party. Um, he said that he the blacks resided on the Democrat or Democratic political plantation. And he said he'd gotten off that plantation long ago, as had black conservative Alan West, therefore implying that black voters totally lacked um, political intelligence and were un- unable to uh, think for themselves. In one speech, he um, said that since he'd fully uh, achieved the American dream, there was nothing for African Americans to complain about, etc. Um, and then also he said that blacks on the left were often more racist than white conservatives, which echoes the kind of frequent complaints you hear about uh, reverse racism from the right. So I thought that his chief utility for the right was to attack or to delegitimize the collective interests of blacks and other non-whites in the 21st century by saying, look, you know, there's, you guys, are, blacks are brainwashed, uh, they're on the political plantation, they can't think for themselves, uh, they, they complain too much, and racism hasn't held anybody back. And I thought that the interesting thing was that Obama had performed a similar kind of function for white liberals. Uh, the kinds of truths that he spoke were that white liberals were a good and noble people when he spoke about the essential and core decency of Americans, um, that they were absolved of the sins of the past, um, that racism in the U.S. was largely vanquished, such as when he said um, that the previous civil rights leaders, we come 90% of the way towards overcoming racism, um, and that Jesse Jackson, uh, Al Sharpton, and poor blacks as a whole were highly pro- problematic people. 
At one point, Jesse Jackson had said that he wanted to cut Obama's nuts off for talking down to black people, and he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep talking about, you know, black personal responsibility, and this is important, and uh, black men need to learn to be fathers to their children and be responsible and uh, pull up their pants, etc. Um, and also him uh, distancing himself from overt support of affirmative action. So I saw some similarities in those kind of truths to the truths that Cain was speaking, um, but Cain spoke them more bluntly. So Cain had stood against quota-style affirmative action. He also called for black personal responsibility when he said, what's there to complain about? Um, and with his brainwash statement saying that blacks were brainwashed, he also um, questioned the common sense, the judgment, and the world view of most black Americans. So Obama had mainly reserved his comments or his um, reprobation for the black poor. So Cain extended it to all black Americans. But I did see um, similarities in those, in, in the ways that they both talked about um, race. And I also thought that this wasn't a coincidence that there was these um, parallels because um, I think that there's a convergence between conservative and liberal stances on racial matters, which indicates the degree to which U.S. racial politics as a whole have shifted to the right. Whereas uh, things such as affirmative action, welfare rights, um, school desegregation, and the enforcement of anti-discrimination law were once cornerstones or pillars of liberalism, these initiatives are now only very meekly defended, if at all, by liberals. So there's been a kind of wholesale shift of uh, racial politics in the U.S. to the right, but with these kind of rightward-leaning tendencies predominating. So, you know, the fact that the kinds of things that you hear coming from black conservatives or black liberals are not that different in a way, especially in the way they talk about how black Americans should be in the 21st century, how they should behave in the public sphere, how they should think about the U.S. Um, is, is, is not, a, not coincidental. It kind of felt like a lot of Obama's adulation was because he was, you know, because of the degree to which he was seen to be rebuking these problematic black figures or be rebuking these versions of, of, of black politics that were so problematic. You know, this is why he was, like, seen as the greatest black person of all time or just he had none of this baggage of, of slavery or he didn't have this um, crippling psychological victimhood. And so... I felt like that was certainly part of Herman Cain's appeal, too. Like saying, yeah, you're right, you know, we don't need affirmative action, uh, racism hasn't held anybody back, and, you know, all these blacks are brainwashed, and, you know, a lot of white liberals are, are blacks are racist, too. This, you know, oh, yes, the reverse racism. So I did not feel that that discourse was in any way directed toward black Americans. It, I thought it was entirely about as I was saying, speaking the kinds of truths about race that whites on the far right wanted to hear. And this is why he was so popular um, with the Tea Party people. I thought the, his appeal was explicitly about race. Uh, same thing with Obama. Um, while there was these arguments that um, Obama's appeal to whites proved that whites were over race or beyond race or he had transcended race, I was like, no, it's clearly about race 
race in some way. It's clearly um, related to the ways that he's performing blackness. Not that he's not performing blackness, but the ways that he pre- he's presenting blackness, the kind of appealing blackness, because he can't be a black candidate in the U.S. with the the degree of racial inequality that we have about the, with the centrality of blackness to our our culture, to our popular imagination, to television media. He can't just appear on the scene and not have to navigate all the stuff about race and about blackness that exists in this culture. So how is he navigating it? How is he doing it? It's been so problematic to be black in the public sphere. So how is he neutralizing the problematic aspects of his blackness, changing them from being problematic to being uh, redemptive and revolutionary? Um, and so my question was, well, certainly, how can you have this, you know, the Tea Party, which arose as kind of a backlash against Barack Obama with some overtly racialized um, imagery by the Tea Party supporters with the signs they would have at the rallies? How do you possibly say that then to have the Tea Party people support, you know, Herman Cain being their darling? How, how is this possible? Mm-hmm. You know, certainly it's about race. It's about this quote-unquote plausible deniability. We support this black candidate, so we're not racist. But also he's saying, you know, he's willing to say some of the kinds of things about race that, that we're saying too, but we get called racist for it. So I guess the natural transition is, how do you see these racial politics that you're describing, you know, from the 2008 election and um, with Herman Cain, how do you see them playing into the election when it's all bet down to Obama and Romney? Yeah, so do you think that Obama's appeal as this first black president, what you argue is one of the main reasons why he got elected, you know, what's up with the second election now? Is, yeah. is he going to be able to use that? Is that worn off? How, how do you think this is different? I kind of think that it, it is and it has <laughs> because uh, I think there was a lot of novelty in him being black. I think there was a lot of um, excitement. I think it was a chance to for America to make a statement about being colorblind and about being anti-racist, but it wasn't a movement It wasn't an anti-racist movement. And, uh, for example, um, one of the main critiques that Obama has gotten from members of the black community, especially the finally the Congressional Black Caucus, are some black um, political figures such as Tavis Smiley, Cornel West, um, Danny Glover, who's an actor actor, but also a political activist, and others, is that he's done very little for black people explicitly. And that while he's been willing and eager to go to different groups, such as uh, Gay and Lesbian Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus, uh, unions, uh, automotive workers, and saying, this is what we've done for you, we're going to fight for you, when he's gone to speak before black audiences... Um, he usually very explicitly refrains from saying he would do anything for black people. And when asked about that in interviews, he said, wait a minute, that's not how politics works. You know, mm-hmm. that's not how politics works. You know, we, we, we fight for everyone. You know, we don't fight for one specific group or another. So I think that if Barack Obama's candidacy had really been the kind of anti-racist movement, the movement for racial change that it was presented as, or that people kind of act as, as, as if it was, it might have had a more long-standing, deeper impact. I think maybe more about making a statement, and it was, it was very symbolic, but I think that statement's kind of been made, and I think that the appeal has kind of worn off. I mean, it's not totally dead. Like, Barack Obama's doing some interesting black performances lately. So one of my arguments is that 
in this vacuum of white identity which has been correlated with American identity because we're, you know, a- approaching this 2050, this demographic change, and there's this crisis about who are we going to be as a country, and there's also what Howard Wynott uh, has referred to as a crisis in white identity, and some other scholars have written that whites uh, feel faced with these choices, like who can I be as white? Is there anything positive about being white? And if there's not, then I either need to deny that I'm white or totally play it down, or I need to emphasize my ethnicity, or I need to, or they might become very defensive, or they might retreat into, uh, they might say, okay, well, we're going to embrace this kind of populist, redneck, uh, blue-collar whiteness, the real America thing. But for kind of more liberal whites, there's um, there's kind of a void there, right? So they don't want to become white nationalists. Um, this limited anti-racism is important to their identity, as you see with the Trayvon Martin hoodie movement, in my opinion. So then what do people grasp onto? Well, I think that, as Charles Gallagher has suggested, in this colorblind age, cultural artifacts of people of color are consumed by the white majority as a source of authenticity or identity, validity. And to me, some of Obama's bounded, depoliticized, limited performances of blackness during the campaign had their appeal in that they could be the basis for kind of a newly revitalized American identity. So because he's the leader of the free world, he's the new face of the U.S., right? Rather than being this country that's kind of universally reviled around the world for being um, for being a kind of a white Christian nation that, you know, is opposed to brown people, that has a war on Muslims, that is intolerant, tries to be the dictator of the rest of the world. So he can be a new face in that sense. And then he's cosmopolitan. He's multicultural. His father is from Kenya. He was raised in Indonesia. But also his blackness itself um, with the fist bump he gave to Michelle Obama in St. Paul here uh, on the night that he won the last, I think it was he won the last Democratic primary, or he did this uh, brush off your shoulders kind of Jay-Z reference um, after one speech while someone was saying, oh, you're taking all this heat, and he was like, I'm not worried about it. (laughs) Or lately he has uh, slow jammed the news with Jimmy Fallon, (laughs) and and he sang um, Al Green at some kind of event. And he also, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner the other night, he says, uh, for those of you who have uh, are in fear that I am trying to run for president because I have this conspiracy, you are absolutely right. And he, like, named all these things he was going to do, and he said, like, we're going to replace the national anthem with, like, young Jeezy or something. Like, all these all these things. So he kind of embraced these these stereotypes and kind of mock them, you know? So it seemed that he was doing less, a little bit less running away from blackness and some of its kind of cultural performative aspects, even though still in a way that's kind of depoliticized. But so that may continue to have its appeal. And I think that he, it will, and maybe he'll, maybe he'll be able to play that up as part of his populist message because he was presented as an elitist in the last election as an arugula eating latte sipping whole foods going to elitist but one of the ways that they've been trying to frame Mitt Romney is as himself as an elitist as a billionaire who's out of touch that may be one of the ways that Obama will be able to uh, establish his kind of down to earth I'm one of the peopleness is through 
emphasizing some of these appealing performances of blackness. So that, that might be how it plays out. I'm interested to see what happens. But before we wrap up, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to get into the podcast? I would like to maybe talk a little bit about differential racialization is one of the trends I see. Now, I talked about one of the things that I saw emerge or come to the forefront in, in the election was this kind of differentialization of blacks into good and bad. And Doug Hartman had talked about this um, somewhat in his work on uh, Michael Jordan, I believe. And also, there is an article that came out in, I believe, The Nation in 2004 about uh, the good and bad blacks and uh, saying voting for Obama, you get a twofer. You get like you get to vote for Obama, and then you also get to vote against Sharpton and, and Jackson. You very much saw in the election a differential racialization of blacks as either good or bad. And the good blacks would be mainstream, articulate, educated, and affable, likable, right? Mm -hmm. And the bad blacks would be angry, lazy, uh, race conscious, culturally deviant, the black poor, etc. And I think that it's interesting because this bifurcation increasingly clearly takes place along lines of class. And so that the good blacks uh, tend to be middle class, professional class blacks, and the bad ones seen as the black poor. And this is not that surprising, but I think it points to the importance of differential racialization by class in the black community, which is something that I think has been understudied and I think would be important to look at in the future how black experience in the U.S., has become more and more bifurcated by class. So that because of the, the growing class gap between black Americans, the ways that blacks themselves experience race, think about race and how they're racialized, really differs very markedly based upon the class that they're in. Because poor blacks being hyper-segregated, for example, and in these kind of hyper-concentrated areas of poverty, and also, as I was saying, residential, cultural, um, almost isolation, and economic isolation in some points, whereas uh, professional blacks not at all being deracialized, right? Because there's no... I mean, one of the problems is the idea is that if blacks aren't poor, they're middle class, they're no longer experiencing race. I think if you look at the examples of Asian Americans, you see this is clearly not true. You don't have to be um, in the lower class to be very much racialized as other or to have um, experiencing race in a lot of ways. But that middle class, professional class blacks, those seeking integration into the mainstream or the upper echelons of society, experiencing racialization, experiencing race discrimination and, and questions of color and belonging in politics in different ways than those who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Well, thank you so much, Professor Logan, okay. for joining us. Oh, thank you for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. In my office. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. 